Hello, my fellow Hellseekers, and welcome back to Primity, where we find simple techniques to address modern problems for our primitive bodies. My name is Andrew Pafford, and I'm a health and wellness professional with over a decade of experience helping Olympic athletes, desk jockeys, and seniors achieving their goals and improving their quality of life. Today is the final episode in our three-part series on weight loss. We'll be covering an equally important part of the equation, and that is stress and sleep and their effects on weight loss specifically. These are essential factors that touch every aspect of our lives, so this will not be a comprehensive analysis on all of the benefits of sleep and stress management, but how they pertain to weight loss in particular. The benefits of these strategies we will discuss may very well carry over into other areas of health and wellness, but again, we're just focusing on the weight loss benefits today. Of course, our purpose with Primity is to distill results of scientific findings into easily approachable strategies and techniques to improve health and wellness for everyday life. So leading the charge out of the gate, let's discuss the overlooked but arguably equally important leg of the weight loss stool, and that is sleep. We have almost a one-stop shop of a manuscript today to provide us with some fantastic information. Normally we reference different articles to support a given topic, but this one manuscript has already compiled all of the articles that we need. So big kudos to the authors of this piece. And that piece is Associations Between Sleep Loss and Increased Risk of Obesity and Diabetes, with authors Kristen L. Knutson and Eve Van Cotter. Now, this manuscript covers the gamut of so many of the factors that tie sleep to obesity. However, for the sake of time, I'll try to hit the highlights, so I strongly suggest you look to the show notes and follow the link to take a look and read the manuscript yourselves. There really is just a font of information here, but here we go. For starters, we need to set the scene a little bit of where we've come from to better understand where we are. In terms of sleep, one of the first studies done on average sleep time was in the 1960s by the American Cancer Society that did a survey to find the average sleep time was around 8 to 8.9 hours. That means in the 60s, the average American was sleeping 8-9 hours a night. In 1995, so about 35 years later, the National Sleep Foundation did a poll that found that the number had dropped to seven hours. So we lost an hour or two within a time span of about three decades on average. Currently, we are sleeping on average six hours or less. So within another 20 years, we've fallen even farther into the hole. This decrease occurs over the same time period that the prevalence of obesity and diabetes also begins to rise, which concurrently also presides over the same time period that our food happened to change drastically from being more of a natural, mechanically processed to a lot more synthetic, chemically processed food as well. So this could very well be a one-two punch as to why obesity and weight gain has skyrocketed over the past three or four decades. In one study that was included in the manuscript, after six nights of only four hours of sleep, Individuals were tested and shown to have 40% lower glucose clearance, which means that once it consumed that the glucose stuck around in the bloodstream longer, which in that form is not necessarily a good thing. Glucose effectiveness was 30% lower, and the acute insulin response was 30% lower as well. All of these factors contribute to hyperglycemia, which if you recall, we referenced in our first episode when we spoke about diabetes, this is what can lead to a diabetic shock when you have too much sugar floating in your bloodstream. Epidemiological data shows also a correlation between shorter sleep duration 
and irregular eating habits and snacking between meals. <clears throat> the experiment that discussed this, we have to talk about two hormones first before we get too far into the ins and outs of the experiment. So we're going to talk about ghrelin and leptin. Ghrelin is often referred to as the hunger hormone, but it is also linked with decreased thermogenesis, meaning the body's ability to produce heat, regulating bone formation, and is even involved in cancer development and metastasis. There's a link to ghrelin in the show notes as well to learn a little bit more about that. And if ghrelin is the hunger hormone, leptin is its antithesis, or the full hormone, or the hormone that makes you feel full. Typically, leptin is actually released by adipose tissue, or fat tissue, as a way of telling the body, we have lots of energy on reserve, so back off the eating. The more adipose, or the more fat is present, the more leptin is present, helping to curb energy consumption. Think of this as, so if you have too much energy in your system, your body has ways to try to shut off the tap, so to speak, so that way you don't continue to over-consume on calories. However, if leptin is present for an extended period of time, one can develop leptin resistance, just as one can be resistant to insulin, such as in diabetes, if insulin is constantly released. This means that the body does not interpret the we-have-too-much-energy signal the way that it should, and that in turn has effectively removed the roadblock and allows for overeating. So to sum it up reductively, ghrelin makes you hungry, think ghrelin as in making my tummy growling, and leptin is what curbs your hunger. In this experiment, brief communication, sleep curtailment in healthy young men is associated with decreased leptin levels, elevated ghrelin levels, and increased hunger and appetite. So 12 men were only allowed to sleep for four hours for two consecutive nights, then 10 hours for another two consecutive nights. Now, as way as experiments go, this one arguably doesn't hold a lot of power. However, it does shed some light on some interesting correlations that definitely warrant some follow-up. So having only 12 subjects means that there's not a, the, the more subjects you can have in an experiment, or we call that the N or the number of a participants, the greater that number, the less likely there was for some fluke or outlier to be involved. So the number is very, very relatively low. Additionally, they only used men, not women. One would expect to see the similar results, but we can't say for sure because no women were used. So this is a good launch pad as sort of almost a crystal ball to potentially see correlations. However, a study that of greater strength would likely need to be done to prove concrete evidence that these are facts. However, as I mentioned, all 12 participants were allowed to sleep for only four hours for two nights in a row, and then were allowed to sleep for 10 hours the following two nights, as if you could argue that, oh, they had to stay up late during the week for work, and then they got to sleep in on the weekend, so to speak. During the short sleep nights, the ratio of ghrelin to leptin, so thinking hunger versus satiety, was double. So that means there was double the amount of ghrelin per leptin. So the power of I'm hungry was much greater than the power of I'm full, stop eating. So that ratio was double that on the four-hour deprived sleep compared to that of the 10-hour sleep. So simply by reducing sleep, they had double the ratio, meaning they had much stronger 
hunger urges, and if people left to their own devices, would likely fulfill them. Additionally, participants, uh, here we go, participants' feelings of hunger correlated with the changes in the hormones. This is a compelling argument that, yes, if, since we're adults and we like to kind of do things for our own, whether they are good or bad sometimes, if left to one's own devices, we would pursue food intake because the increase of ghrelin and its effects would be felt more, and as leptin would be lowered, it would be a less effective governor to calm down. So sometimes when people say, oh, I just can't help myself, they're not kidding. They are literally, basically, you have these hormones acting as, imagine, drugs when you know someone's on an, Ill, an illicit drug doing crazy things that, they, that no reasonable human being would. Well, if these hormones become so powerful to certain levels, it's not just a matter of willpower at that point. You're basically being hijacked by drugs that your body is producing because they are not in appropriate levels. So that is the, the effects of sleep, or I should say lack of sleep, on ghrelin and leptin, leptin, your body's ability to manage its own appetite. So now let's talk about stress and obesity. It has been proven time and again that stress releases cortisol, which leads to increased eating. Cortisol is our hormone that plays a huge role in the sympathetic fight-or-flight mechanism. We have two pathways, sympathetic and parasympathetic. Not can I sympathize with you, but it is the name such that when this system is engaged, this is what is our activator, our arousal, our go switch, if you will. This is what really turns the body on and ramps it up. Our parasympathetic is the calm down and perform maintenance route. So the more that the sympathetic pathway is stimulated, the more you're going to ratchet up and be awake and be ready for action, increased heart rate, increased blood pressure. And the more the parasympathetic is stimulated, the more you're going to calm down, relax, maintenance, sleep, what have you. So cortisol is the hormone that plays a huge role in the sympathetic fight-or-flight mechanism. And since that pathway is a huge energy drain, it would make sense that we would want to eat more calories to offset the potentially incurred increased energy expenditure. As I just allowed, in the fight-or-flight scenario, your body needs to have all things operating at maximum efficiency, which means more things are running, more things need energy. So it's expected that when cortisol is released, your heart's beating faster, your blood vessels are dilating, your muscles are likely working more. This is the classic scenario of you see a tiger, your body freaks out, you need to start running like crazy. Your body wants to make sure that your muscles are primed, getting everything they need so that you can run for your life. So it's expected that if you're going to be running hard, you're going to be using lots of energy. So this hormone prepares you for that impending physical demand. You have to remember primitive bodies. We didn't have a lot of psychosocial stressors. We had a lot of physical stressors. So this hormone released by stress has a lot of physical effects on the body. However, mental stress does not burn physically the same amount of energy as running from a tiger does. So our bodies are trying to compensate for the energy burned that was not actually burned. So when you are say, being yelled at by your boss, your body is reacting as if a tiger is there and preparing you to go run, but you're just sitting in your chair. And then your boss leaves, but you never had to go run from the tiger. So now you had all this cortisol released, 
it is now preparing your body to make up for that energy deficit of having run from a tiger, but it didn't exist. So now you are hungry when you don't need to eat anything because no energy was actually burned. So now we have another reasoning as to why stress can influence appetite as well. It's also known to be a disruptor of sleep, for which we discussed is another factor for weight gain. Stress is also known to be a disruptor of sleep, which we just discussed. If you're not getting good sleep, that can also be another factor for weight gain. So in many ways, these two areas are the same area. Poor sleep leads to stress. Stress leads to poor sleep. With the feedback loop such as this, it's sometimes difficult to break the cycle once entrenched. Fortunately, with these areas, there are many simple, actionable steps to begin to right the ship, so to speak, to help set oneself up for success. Since we want to keep these episodes on the shorter side, I'll wet your palate a little bit by discussing these solutions, and then we can elaborate them in future episodes. But I want to ensure that you've walked away from today with not just a call to action to change your lifestyle, but how to change your lifestyle. Some of these may apply to you. Some may not. You may have tried some of these, and that's okay. However, these are all things that have strong physiological backing, and these are, again, places to start. We're trying to look for actionable, simple steps that can have large impacts that just about the vast majority of our audience can approach. So number one is meditate. Meditation does not need to take an extended period of time. 10 minutes a day has been shown to be extremely effective. That's it. And whenever, right when you wake up, before bed, maybe a bathroom break at work, lunch break, you figure it out. You do not need to be good at meditating either. Meditation takes practice. Do a Google search and see what different types of techniques are out there. Kind of like food, different people like different things. So I'm not here to tell you that there is one bulletproof method that's been shown to work. But you need to invest some time in yourself to research and try the different methods and see which one fits your style, your approach, your life the best. This has been shown to be, again, an effective, effective way at reducing stress which is one part of that sleep stress cycle that we need to break. Now for the sleep side of things, get your morning sun. If you have difficulty going to bed or waking up on time, then your circadian rhythm is likely off, and you can simply readjust that by viewing sunlight first thing in the morning for at least 10 minutes. You must also go outside to do this. Viewing light when it enters the eye, the amount of light released from the sun is greater than any of our normal indoor bulbs, so the sunlight is absolutely imperative. But when light is viewed first thing, that is what effectively rewinds the clock and sets your morning and therefore sets your waking time. So if you're waking up late and the sun's been up for an hour or two, then you're going to go to bed late, which is going to cause you to get up late. And so the cycle will continue. So if you can force yourself out of bed the moment the sun is rising, which you can figure out when that is. You can just open a window and stick your head out. You can leave your building, go for a walk, walk your dog, whatever. But you need to be able to get the direct light into your eye. Don't stare directly at the sun. That's obviously going to hurt your eyes. But you need to be outside and allow the light bouncing off the surfaces to be able to enter the eye. Windows have UV block, and so they will take a big, big edge off of light. And that's why simply looking out your window is not nearly as effective. So do your best to get outside, whether it's a head out the window, 
or you're able to rouse yourself from bed and physically leave your building, strongly suggest getting light first thing in the morning. No artificial lights at night. We've heard this before. However, you can also, if you need to, resort to red light if necessary. White light tricks the brain into thinking that the sun is still up. However, when the sun sets, it has that nice red hue to it, that nice red sunset. And our bodies respond to that. So if you use a computer or a phone, make sure or do some digging and see if it has a night mode. I know a lot of phones typically do. Simply turning down the brightness of your phone helps, but if you can get it to change the hue, that is ideal. I know on PCs, there's a program called Flux. It's F.Lux, and a link to that in the show notes. It actually knows what time zone you're in, and it will begin to change the hue of your monitor as the sun is setting. So it actually mimics the same color as the sun as it actually is outside at the exact same time. And when the sun has set, it is a very dark hue. Now it does also make it slightly harder to see, which is also kind of the point because that's sort of your signal to basically say, hey, the sun is down. You should probably stop being on your giant monitor right now and getting ready for bed. So I strongly recommend looking to that. It's free, so it's definitely worth a shot. And I've had some pretty good success with that. So another one that is a little interesting, depending on your schedule, may require some timing involved. But ideally, no food two hours before bed. And we mean done eating two hours before bed. So if you get into bed at 9 o'clock, you need to be putting your fork or your spoon down from your last bite at 7. Not sitting down to eat at 7 o'clock and then noshing for another 45 minutes to an hour. If you're still putting food in your body, that still counts. Digesting your food is work. It's hard work, and trying to sleep and work at the same time is not something the body is good at. So you're going to continue to slightly stay awake because your body's having to engage in energetically demanding work, digesting your food. It's not just making the acid and the chemicals and the enzymes to break your food down, but it's also mechanical work. You're insides actually contract and relax and are working almost like a workout but for your insides so working and sleeping at the same time doesn't work out so well finally tracking your sleep where possible you may have an underlying issue that you're completely unaware of that's affecting your ability to sleep well so a simple device tracker may be the thing to let you know if you sleep alone or if your partner's a sound sleeper and even if you snore they couldn't tell you because they just sleep so deep options are many. I know there is one app in particular. I'll see if I can include that in the show notes for at least Android that's totally free that uses your phone as a sleep tracker that uses the gyro in the phone to detect motions in the bed, which helps predict what phase of sleep that you're in. And then it also will record whenever it hears a sound if you snore. So you can refer back to the data and see Did you have trouble breathing? Were you snoring? Did you have children who came running into your room that kept you up at night, like yours truly? (laughs) So all of that is captured, and it'll help you assess the not only duration, but the efficiency of your sleep as well, which can be crucial. So these little things are little in action, but can have enormous impacts that can set you on a correct course, especially when you implement them one after the other. Start with these and keep on listening. 
so we can continue to find ways to help improve our lives. Please reach out with your health-related questions at info at And remember, strength can come in many forms, from within and without. And so because life is short, be strong to be useful. Take care, everyone.